I think I've gotten to where I am by luck, by maintaining my curiosity, by always being self-critical and trying to get myself to do better and to be better at what I do, to study the work of people that I think are doing it better than me, of which there's many. So, um, and I think also learning how to have a, dare I use the phrase, dialectical relationship with the, your, the people you work with, because they will make you better if you let them, just as hopefully you'll make them better. And action. Welcome back to the Art of the Shot podcast, and thank you for tuning in. I took a little mid-season break because, well, yeah, the pandemic affected my life too. But I have been busy during that time, and I'm happy to bring you some really great new episodes in the coming weeks. I've also added the ability to donate a small recurring amount directly to support the show, which would really help me keep this up. You can find the link to donate in the episode description. And with this episode, I'm working to give you even more value by adding timestamp notes to key moments from our conversation, which you can view in the episode description as well. Now you can jump straight to certain moments you want to hear, or come right back to them if you want to listen to them again in the future. For this episode, I'm talking with the great Oscar-nominated cinematographer, Newton Thomas Siegel, ASC, the man responsible for lensing modern classics like The Usual Suspects and Drive, as well as the film Three Kings and four of the movies in the X-Men series. Bohemian Rhapsody and the Netflix film Extraction are also among his recent accomplishments, and Extraction was the most-watched Netflix film they've made yet. Tom and I have a really deep conversation that delves into some of his amazing life experiences, his unique approach to lighting, thoughts on the art and craft of cinematography, and many details on shooting his latest film, The Five Bloods, for director Spike Lee. Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate his next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. So are you blaming yourself? You don't even know. No! We've been dying for this country from the very get. I have to be very careful. And that means knowing exactly who I am in business with. Now streaming on Netflix, the film is an amazingly timely and quite powerful film that explores themes of racism, man versus nature, and the legacy of the Vietnam War. 
It's told through the story of four African-American veterans returning to Vietnam in the present day in a quest to seek the remains of their fallen squad leader and the gold fortune he helped them hide in the jungle. It's sure to be up for multiple Oscars next year, and hopefully you've seen it by now. If not, I try to reference the moments in the film that I'm asking about, so you can imagine the scene as Tom talks about how he achieved it. I hope our conversation inspires you. And as always, thank you for listening and sharing your time with me and today's guest, Newton Thomas Siegel. Hi, Tom. Thank you so much for coming on the Art of the Shot podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'd like to start with a connection I noticed between your life story and what's happening right now, which is that you were born and raised in Detroit and lived in the city during the riots of the 1960s, which is a time not unlike what's going on all over America right now, the whole pandemic and economic consequences notwithstanding. So what do you think about this time in our history and what have you been up to the past few months since the pandemic began? I grew up in Detroit and the very first time that my mother and my father ever went out of town and left my older brother and I alone was the night of my Little League All-Star game. That very same night, the police raided a speakeasy called the Blind Pig. And the next day, a massive uprising broke out. And my brother and I found ourselves alone in the midst of it. Um, my parents couldn't get back to Detroit. Phone lines were down. Uh, the National Guard ended up coming into Detroit. There was tanks in the street. Gas stations were covered in sandbags with 50 caliber machine guns. Wow. 43 official deaths at the hands of police and National Guard. The real number of deaths is really unknown. It was also a time when my brother decided that he was interested in photojournalism not long before that. He was a still photographer. And so he dragged his little 12-year-old brother out into the streets to photograph the warfare that was right down the block from us, where um, buildings were being burnt down and um, merchants were painting Soul Brother on the front of their stores, hoping they wouldn't get destroyed. Um, it was a, a, a real outcry of just anger at the disenfranchisement of the black population in Detroit and really all over the country. I mean, this was during the middle of the, the protests against the war in Vietnam. The civil rights movement was still really very far from reaching any goals. Mm. And now I find myself a lifetime later seeing the same thing happening all over again. And yet... I, what I see in the streets is so different. And putting aside the first night or two when there was a certain degree of opportunism or just unbridled anger that led to looting or the, um, you know, the uh, incessant need for cell phones and sneakers. But what's been happening those first nights and now, even more so since, is a kind of the spontaneous, overwhelming, and heterogeneous 
ethnically, racially heterogeneous outcry, not just over George Floyd, but over a nation that is crippled by huge economic disparity and inequality and racial disparity and inequality. Police brutality is really just one symptom of a, uh, a much bigger national crisis. And we have made a choice as a nation to elect a president who not only promotes that inequality and division, but seems to revel in its exacerbation. Um, so on the one hand, I find it very, very kind of tragic that we're still fighting the same things we were 40, 50 years ago, not to mention the Rodney King moment. Yeah, right. And were you in Los Angeles at that time? You know, I lived in Los Angeles, but I was on a movie in New York and I watched my neighborhood burn down once again. At that time, I had a house in Koreatown. They seemed to attract civil unrest. Um, but I was not in the city itself. So on the other hand, I find great inspiration in, in this massive outpouring and the way it's inspired the whole world. I mean, people in Australia are demonstrating in the streets over police brutality in the United States. And they're not just demonstrating because all oh, the poor Americans they're demonstrating because so many of these nations are dealing with some of the same issues. And for the first time, we're seeing things like corporate America feeling they have to address it, elected officials feeling they have to address it. If this had, you know, in, in the period of the Detroit riots, this would have been, um, I mean, it was, send in the, Send in the military, send in the National Guard, you know. Yeah, and it was fairly isolated to Detroit or to, you know, black communities that um, that were in solidarity with that, but it didn't end up reaching all of America and certainly didn't spread to the world. It created very little empathy in white America. And sadly, a lot of the destruction and the violence was within the black community. And what's amazing now is that you're seeing these demonstrations taken to the streets, particularly in Los Angeles, in very affluent areas. And in Washington, where I think the most important demonstration of all, tens of thousands of people in front of the White House that couldn't be moved except with tear gas and uh, rubber bullets. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, we have a president, Bunker Boy, who has, you know, uh, barricaded himself inside a fortress with some of the few remaining loyalists that he hasn't fired and uh, is seems to be less worried about what's happening in the streets than he is about the accuracy of CNN polls. If you look at today's tweets, hmm. I try not to. <laughs> so for me, 
for me, it's a it's a very significant parallel. And having grown up in that period, which, as I said, was not only these these civil uprisings, but was this massive uprising against the war in Vietnam. To be able to do a film like The Five Bloods with Spike, who is so prescient about what's going on. Completely. I mean, even the timing of the release of this film is like... It's unbelievable. Yeah, a massive and coincidence. It's totally... And Spike would tell you it's not a coincidence. And the reason he would tell you it's not a coincidence is because he would say, you know, mm. it's not a coincidence I had Black Lives Matter in the film because this has been going on and it will continue to go on. And that's why I had to make this movie. So... I don't want to put words in Spike's mouth, but my guess is he would say that none of this surprises him. I think what might surprise him, what might surprise him, is the massive outpouring. Yeah. Having lived through similar kinds of experiences and, and times in America, and of course nothing really changed, what does it feel different to you? Does it feel like this is just another round and it'll just keep on going or like something is really going to shift from this? No, I think it does. Mm. I think it does feel different. I think it feels different. I don't think a month from now we will um, have solved the problem of racism and economic and racial inequality. But I think as sad it is that it still exists, you can't deny that today um, there's not more consciousness about these issues and more will. You can't deny, you know, I, I think for, for all the racism and, and inequality that still exists, mm -hmm. I think it's undeniable that we have made some progress. We have more black elected officials than we've ever had. We have more black people in power than we've ever had, more representation in our police forces than we've ever had. But that also tells you how far we have to go. Yeah, it's uh, there's certainly a lot more to be done, and it feels like a lot of the changes that have been made are just um, very small steps to actually making a real shift. But you know, at least the trend on, on a larger scale seems to be more towards you know the the goals of the civil rights movement. It's good to know that this feels different, though. Because uh, obviously, you know, I, I grew up, well, I was born in 92, so I only even know about the, you know, the Rodney King riots from, you know, uh, reading about it and seeing footage of the, of the time. But gr gratifying to know that people are really uh, standing against what, what has been happening for way too long. So um, I'd love to talk about The Five Bloods, but um, before we get into that, I wanted to just follow up with the last part of my question, which was about what you've been up to since the pandemic began. I, I imagine you've been 
you know, having much more free time than you've had probably in several decades. So what have you been doing with your with your time? Uh, well, you know, I would um, uh, I would love to say that I am uh, that I've, you know, made the most amazing short film of my life. <laughs> And uh, me too. But uh, uh, but but the but the truth is, uh, the truth is, um, I've been going back through um, photographs and and doing some editing, um, trying to clean up um, decades of still photography from the films I've done over the years. Um, and I've um, uh, been using it as a time to to read and catch up on films. Like many people, I've been teaching uh, three different online courses for my uh, both my son's school and uh, a school up in Canada. Um, been moving house and trying to keep two kids on track with distant learning, which seems to be uh, not so easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly a uh, great difficulty. My, my girlfriend's mom is a school teacher, and she's been having to switch to doing everything online for the rest of the school year, so I've heard about a lot of those challenges. Um, you mentioned photography, though. Is that kind of how you started? Um, or how did you start? How did you get your uh, career as a cinematographer off the ground? When I was a, in high school, I had an older brother, like I mentioned earlier, who was into still photography and used to let me sit in the dark room sometimes and watch this miracle of an image like coming to life in, in, uh, in this weird soup. And... I got fascinated by it, but like a lot of kids, I had a love-hate relationship with my older brother, so I couldn't do exactly what he was doing, right? That would be too much. So I, um, I had a job since I was 14, and I saved my money, and I bought a Super 8 camera, and I started to make little, little movies, just, you know, um, not even Spielberg narrative mm -hmm. kind of things, but more just weird slightly demented um, um, little films. Mm -hmm. And you would edit them as well? I would edit them. and Oh, you do everything. I mean, you know, you, you film it, you edit it, you add sound and all that good stuff. Um, so you were a filmmaker in the full sense of the word from the start? Uh, a filmmaker, but let's be clear, these were 14-year-old films, right? So uh, Right. Uh, you were filmmaking. You weren't doing narrative storytelling. No, I was not. Um, I wasn't doing even TH1138, THX1138, let alone Star Wars. Um, but I was having fun, you know, and I, and I was also drawing and painting. So, you know, there was, you know, as much as I played sports and everything, there was clearly an attraction to, to the arts. And... Um, when I got out of high school, I got a job for $50 a week at a thing called Media Study, Inc. And Media Study was loosely associated with the University of Buffalo. 
And there was a man there named Gerald O'Grady, who was a real, he was an English professor, but was really a champion of um, experimental cinema. Uh, and at that time, that involved people like uh, Stan Brackage and Hollis Frampton and uh, Paul Sheritz and the Kubelkas and Kenneth Anger, who gave me my first actual ever job. Although I don't think I got paid, but I did go shoot for him. Hmm. Um, but I got this job. I got $50 a week. Um, it was in a storefront in Buffalo, New York. And I um, we had moved to Buffalo um, in a, sort of while I was in high school. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a great experience for me because I met all of these visiting artists. Um, Jerry O'Grady would bring, you know, Kenneth Anger in for uh, to show films and give lectures. And I would be the, the guy that would take care of him and or whoever the particular artist was that came through, which is how I got my my little moment with Kenneth Anger. Um, and they had a little room full of equipment, like, you know, uh, uh, video porta packs. This was very early days of video when you were recording on half inch tape and it was all black and white. Um, and uh, Nam June Pike showed me what a magnet does to a CRT television. And I, this room of equipment of sort of very crude, low budget, lo fi equipment um, was available for loan from the local community. Like if, if you were. Because they, they taught, you know, there was these classes and workshops and stuff in place. And um, part of my job was to take care of this equipment. So before they officially opened, I, I sort of locked myself in that room for um, uh, a couple of days and read every manual to every piece of equipment they had there. And, uh, you know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was one 16 millimeter uh, Bolex, uh, which was and a Bow U which were sort of the, those were the gold standards. Those were the like, if you really know what you're doing and you're really responsible, we might let you use it. Um, so um, that gave me my kind of first introduction or whatever you want to call it to, um, you know, equipment and, and, and a kind of a, a, a sort of interface with hardware, so to speak. So, um, that's what I did. Um, I did that for uh, a year. Uh, and then I went off um, and I spent a year at the Whitney Museum in New York City, where I was an artist in residence. Um, and then I spent a year at Hampshire College in, uh, in Western Massachusetts, where I uh, met uh, another filmmaker named uh, Pamela Yates, and along with a gentleman named Peter Canoy, we we after uh, Hampshire College, we moved to New York City, where I, uh, along with them, we started a company called Skylight Pictures and made documentaries. And I made documentaries for uh, a number of years. Um, this was during the 80s, so we were um, particularly 
uh, involved in the wars that were going on in Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and so forth. Um, and in that period, that was where um, the work I was doing um, first caught the attention of Haskell Wexler and gave me my first opportunity to shoot a feature film and also gave me uh, or brought me to the attention of uh, Oliver Stone, where I got the good fortune of being able to work on Platoon. Wow. And I don't remember your question at all. I'm just rambling on. <laughs> no, it's it's fine. The question was about how you um, got your start as a cinematographer, how you um, made your career happen, basically. So you were getting oh, there. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> there was a lot you were just mentioning. I mean, I know just from reading a little bit about you that the experiences making documentaries in Central America were kind of uh, notable for a few reasons. I mean, you were the first or you and the people you worked with were the first people to capture any footage of the Contras, right? That's correct. Pam and I, first two people to film them. That's pretty notable. It was. Wow. It, uh, was just a, the two of you? Just uh, Well, there was also a Swedish journalist that we took along named Peter Torbjörnsson. Oh. He, he went with us. Interesting. And then that led you... Well, not that directly, but your experiences during that time doing documentaries then led you to work with one of the great legends of the craft, Haskell Wexler, uh, and then working on Platoon. Did you? What else did you do with Haskell, though? Did he? Was that kind of like a film school for you? Because did, from what you mentioned before, it sounds like you didn't. It was definitely my film school. Okay, because you didn't really go to film school. You were, did you like study film when you were? At the uh, the colleges? Well, I went to Hampshire for a year, Hampshire College. It did have a film program run by a guy named Jerry uh, Jerry Liebling. Um, and I really went there because my parents couldn't believe that I wasn't going to college. They were shocked. And Hampshire had really good 16-millimeter equipment. Um, and Hampshire uh, had one... Tremendous alumni from that period, which was Ken Burns. Uh, uh, Ken Ken was like a year ahead of me, and uh, Jerry Liebling um, had created this program at Hampshire, which was kind of like uh, a little production company um, because they had you know they had the equipment, they had the infrastructure of the college, and they had free student labor. They could um, produce little documentaries for like the Red Cross or Sturbridge Village or things like that. Um, you know, to be honest, cheaper than an actual production company. Now, I at the time was more interested in kind of, you know, experimental filmmaking and stuff, but we were sort of the poor stepchild because the other, you know, um, the, the st kind of stuff that Ken Burns was doing um, was, had contractual, uh, arrangements with like whether it was the Red Cross or whatever so they they, they sort of got the the, the, the sort of uh, pick of the litter so to speak but um, it, it was a good year there you know I, I actually did end up doing a film um, during the bicentennial 1976 um, there a small town in the area got a grant uh, to make a movie and the grant was so low that even Ken 
Burns and the other sort of more uh, legitimate filmmakers didn't want to do it. And uh, so uh, myself and a fellow named Steve Oaks took it on. Um, Haskell was um, somebody who saw our movies, our documentaries. He was interested in them. He, you know, he was, uh, you know, a kindred spirit politically. And and he became sort of a mentor. He, he became a mentor in a very unusual way, though. You know, he was not he was not a mentor in the sense of, you know, I was your loader and then your first assistant. And then I started operating for you and I watched you on set and learned all that. He was really more a mentor in, first of all, giving me the opportunity to shoot my first feature film which was huge, you know, as unqualified as I was. But he was also a mentor, really, as a role model, as somebody who was very much about the art and the craft at the same time as he was about what it was you were saying and how you said it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right. here's a guy that, um, you know, could have been doing anything he wanted, but he chose to, you know, take his own money and go to Nicaragua and make a movie about Nicaragua. So he, um, you know, he was very much a role model for me in, in, in many ways. And um, I think in ways I didn't totally realize at the time, but in looking back on it, um, you know, I am forever and will be forever in debt to, you know, what Haskell did for me. Hmm. Well, that that brings up a interesting kind of question that I'm curious about. I mean, there's a there's a difference between being a, a professional, which is characterized by expertise and highly developed skills, and then there's being a master, someone consistently working at the top of the craft and really exemplifying, you know, what the what the craft is capable of of doing and being. And obviously Haskell was one of those people, but I would argue you're you're clearly a master yourself. So reflecting back, I'd love to know what you think got you to be where you are now, beyond being really good at the craft. What what took you to the top? Well, I'm not so sure I'm at the top, but <laughs> I mean I can I can think about what took me to where where I am. Um, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's think about it that way then. I don't think there are too many uh, artists. There are cinematographers that will go, you know, I've only done exactly what I want and everything I've done has been great, right? Um, I think like a lot of people, um, I had ambitions to, to make movies. Um, I think I came belatedly to the concept of it as a career. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of interesting because when I went and worked on Platoon and you know, uh, Bob Richardson was the cinematographer and I, I did the second unit. And Bob was somebody who, you know, had gone to Rhode Island School of Design, had um, gone to the AFI. He was very clearly somebody that un wanted to be a cinematographer and wanted to have a career. And he understood what that meant and, and what you did to, to, to have a career. I was clueless. You know, I was really clueless. It was a fluke that I ever got to meet Haskell. Um, 
And I think coming out of that sort of experimental purist art world, um, you know, I had to shake off and it's taken me actually many years to shake off some of that, like, you know, last tango in Paris is Hollywood commercialism. You know, I mean, I, 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 I somehow the idea that you were as an artist, that you were like, can have a career um, was somehow impure, you know, now, now this hmm. is going back, you know, realizing like I grew up in the, 60s and the 70s and so today you know just look at the world of hip-hop as an example the idea that you know you sell products and fashion and sneakers and music is all the same is 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 you know or you put your music in a commercial nobody blinks anymore but you know when i was coming up i think that was still you know that concept of selling out or whatever so I, I, um, I think it, it, it took me a while to realize what a cinematographer really is and should be. I, I think, you know, I learned things, by, a lot of it by trial and error, by making mistakes, and doing stupid things, um, but, uh, and faking it, bluffing. Um, but there's also... There is no master, as we call it, as you call it, or someone at the top of their game that didn't get there without luck. Hmm. And it's no sing single event, but I mean, I'll give you a couple of examples. Like, you know, I got a chance to do Usual Suspects, and Usual Suspects could have been a little indie movie that nobody saw. Or it could have been a cult movie, and it turned into a cult movie that, you know, to this day gives me a lot of street cred. After I did Usual Suspects, I had a meeting, two meetings. I got two potential offers. One of them was for a, a, a woman doing a, a adaptation of a Joyce Carol Oates novel. And I'd never worked for a woman before, and it was a union film. So I thought, well, this is interesting, you know five million dollar movie but and the other one was like a gangster movie for some young guy that was really intriguing but you know another gangster movie it's like i just did usual suspects but i really want to do that let's go do the movie with the with the female director about female empowerment mm -hmm. and let's recommend somebody to, to for this other movie well the movie i did was called foxfire it's not a bad movie but nobody ever saw it and other than getting to shoot Angelina Jolie in one of her first movies, it was came and went and is completely forgotten. The other movie that I didn't do was um, Paul Thomas Anderson, and it was uh, called Sydney or Hard Eight. You know, it came out with a different name. And so, you know, that's just one of those serendipitous moments that can go either way. And I think um, if I hadn't had enough of the lucky moments, um, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So I think I've gotten to where I am by luck, by maintaining my curiosity, by always being self-critical and trying to get myself to do better. And 
to be better at what I do, to study the work of people that I think are doing it better than me, of which there's many. Um, so, um, and I think also learning how to have a, dare I use the phrase, dialectical relationship with the your the people you work with, because they will make you better if you let them, just as hopefully you'll make them better. So I think it's a you know it's a combination of all of those things. Um, you can teach ninety percent of this craft, but there is another ten percent that is, and I don't know if these percentages these numbers are stupid, but um, there is something taste and eye and aesthetic that you just can't teach mm -hmm. and that you know vision creativity uh, is a, a magical mystical thing that some people have in different variations and degrees and others so i mean i think at the end of the day um i'm where i'm at because i keep pushing myself to do better because I've been lucky and because I must have at least a little bit of a sort of innate talent, I hope. Right, yeah. I mean, the, the difference really between being a pro and a master, I guess, is, is a, a good bit more than what I um, suggested. But there is, there, yeah, there's some elusive things there. I mean, taste is a huge part of it. Luck, like you said, and and even beyond the luck, because the luck is what gives you the opportunities, and then you still have to make the right choice when you're presented with a door. And I love the example you gave of of making you know going through the right door, and then you know as as far as we know you know you then chose the wrong door the next time. So have you learned anything that you could suggest to others about how to make those good choices every time? <laughs> If I knew that, if I knew that, I would have made them every time. You can never know how to make the good choices. But what you have to do, I mean, first of all, different people approach cinematography for different reasons. And I, I, I kind of learned this relatively early on. There's some people that are very attracted to, you know, getting per diem and having a chair with your name on it and, you know, um, you know, being the head of a department or you know, like being an American cinematographer magazine or being able to say you did a $78.3 million movie or whatever it is. And then there's some people that just, there's some right. people that just, the notoriety, or the lifestyle even. And there's some people that just love doing it. So I think, um, you know, why people choose to do any given project is very specific to who they are as a, as a person and as an artist. But I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, I know for myself, I look at the material and I look at the talent, meaning director, actors, writer involved, and I make a choice. And it's not like I have a lot of choices. I mean, um, everybody thinks, you know, we all sit here thinking that Roger Deakins and Chivo just, sit at home waiting for the phone to ring and say no 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 until somebody something they like and i i think even those people um it's not as as idealistic as the working stiffs like myself sometimes think so um 
I think you know you you have to you have to weigh your personal things. You know, what are your finances? What is your family life? With um, how desperate you are to work and how much you believe in the project that you're given. And you know, when I hear people in interviews and things say that you know they they only do things they're passionate about, I think, well, mm-hmm. man, they uh, <laughs> they must never work. You know. Because, uh, you know, the, the amount of times when I've gotten a script that is amazing and then there's an offer and all the elements are great are few and far between. Yeah. So I guess the, the thing you'd have to do then is to find a way to become passionate about whatever you're working on, find like a, a way into it. Do you do, you do that um, for projects? Do you have some kind of like a a creative process where you really dive into the material and find what resonates with you and try and really make it connect with your life and your experiences? Or do you just, um, you know, I mean, obviously you mostly work on projects that you have some connection to, otherwise you wouldn't choose them. Um, well, no, not, not necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, you can't um, think just like an actor would, you know, you have to find, um, you have to find a connection or, or, or something that, you know, resonates for you. I mean, um, when I was uh, offered the first X-Men movie, I it wasn't like um, I was a huge comic book fan or a big X-Men fan or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found reading the story that it somehow almost felt like um, a parable of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And that was sort of my entree, or that that, that was how I got myself into um, thinking about the movie. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think when you are sent a script, you know, you start to just think about who – is involved, you know, what you, you read it and kind of try and figure out what it inspires in you or makes you think or what associations you make and um, mm-hmm. go from there. And how about the actual process of, of really determining what the visuals are going to be? You don't seem to really have a particular style. I mean, beyond a, a focus on storytelling, um, you know, your aesthetic, I I think is, a, if anything, more characterized by trying new techniques and, and having unusual perspectives. Um, and speaking of perspectives, I mean, right now even, I can picture at least one shot from uh, most of your films that are from some unusual or striking perspective. So what do you do to break down a script? What's your creative process of turning words on a page into, um, you know, a look and a mood? Well, the the... You know, the first thing when I when I do get a script and I read it, um, I I have to admit that unlike some people, I think that read it and they start having visions and seeing how they're going to shoot it, and what the you know the image looks like. I find that I am just reading a story, and. I get engrossed in the story and the sort of the content of what it is I'm reading. 
And then I have to say, okay, you know, assuming it was interested me enough, I go back and I go, okay, so now I'm going to think about the fact that I have to shoot this. So it's like, um, you know, okay, so, you know, there's, there's the aesthetic side of that, of, you know, like what, um, what is this evoking, you know, color wise, energy wise, is it, is it, you know, quick cuts? Is it slow and lyrical? Is it aggressive and abrasive? What is it? You know, what is this thing I'm reading? And then there's also the practical side, you know, when you're thinking, oh my God, it's all nights and it's, you know, um, this sequence is, you know, they've got 30 days to shoot this and there's this huge sequence. How are they going to do that? There's, so there's, you know, both the pragmatic aspect of the craft and then the sort of aspirational aspect of the craft, which is, hmm. you know, what what's the look of the movie? Right. It's a good uh, distinction between those two. Well, there's so many ways to light something. So do you have a particular kind of thought process that guides your choices when it comes to how you're going to ultimately uh, light uh, a scene? Do you have kind of like go-to... Uh, fallbacks you rely on or are you just kind of trying to figure out every single scene as a unique little you know setting yeah i i mean i have certain things that i gravitate toward um i mean first and foremost i i i have an aversion to things being overlit and um i'm the first person to want to cheat with the lighting and yet for me it's very important that the light feel real or naturalistic um to a degree mm -hmm. and to me there's nothing more beautiful than when you have really striking light that is completely natural mm -hmm. you know i start from that place i start from a place of naturalism you know of source lighting like where is the light coming from and what kind of light is it and then from there you know i start to craft it like is it um you know, do we want it a lighter, fuller, airier kind of feeling to the light? Or is it heavier? Is it moodier? Is it more joyful? So that becomes the next, that's the next thing that drives the set of choices. Mm -hmm. And then always, even within those extremes, I'm looking for ways to create some kind of contrast or uh, drama. And contrast is, you know, the first thing we tend to think of is something really dark and something really bright in the same frame. So you have, you know, high contrast, but contrast can come in so many ways. Um, it can come in color, you know, when you have like a green, there's a little piece of red in it that just mm -hmm. pops because of its background. You know, from the lighting point of view, I'm always looking for it to be, to be expressive and yet natural. Mm. and to be sort of expressive of the mood that you're trying to, the tonality that you're trying to present at any given time. Mm -hmm. um, then within that, you know, certain specific things, like I tend to like either very, very soft light or very, very hard light. I kind of... Really like committing to one direction over another? Yeah, the stuff in the middle I'm less interested in. Mm -hmm. I rarely use fill light or at least... Rarely from the fill side. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I I like separation, so backlight is can be nice, but it can never feel like backlight unless it's somehow it's a degree of justification. And I tend to light faces from the direction to which they're looking. So very often I'll try to structure scenes where the eye lines will be in the direction of their source lighting. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always that sort of a saying, you know, that the best place for the biggest light is behind the actor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Are there... I mean, you're kind of hinting at it already, but are there any kind of like little tricks of the trade you've picked up or any personal sort of techniques that you have found for yourself that you find yourself relying a lot on that um, maybe you'd feel comfortable sharing with people uh, as like a form of advice, you know, to make something better than how you see it typically done, whether it's a way of making soft lighting look, you know, a certain way or making lighting look more natural or how to make hard lights not look so uh you know like lit but more more like it's up really a part of the the scene well i think you have to go into any given situation sort of decide where your light's coming from mm-hmm. you know is it is it your predominant light you know is it coming from is it coming from this window is it coming from the desk lamp is it coming from the car headlights what, what is what what if there was no camera and there was no lighting truck, where would the light be coming from? And um, make your choice and then start to build from that point, you know, forward. Um, and, you know, never forget that every part of the frame doesn't need to be lit and mm-hmm. things can fall into shadow. And the minute you feel the lights too much, mm-hmm. It's probably because, for whatever reason, it's not uh, it's not natural. And uh, there's actually a difference between natural and real. You know, natural is what the light is really doing, and real is what you will believe when you see it. Hmm, that's a good distinction. You're right. A lot, a lot of times, you might have somebody, and there's a lamp behind them, and you put a little gentle, soft backlight, as if it's coming from the lamp. But when you really think about it, it's coming much, um, it's coming from a higher position than the lamp really is. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you actually just use the lamp, the backlight would never even be high enough to separate the actor. So, you know, there's... Yet, if you do it subtly enough, you can make it believable that, okay, there's a light there, and I see it's how it's hitting the actor, and it's all tying it together. Um, the, the digital world has changed everything when it comes to lighting, and yet nothing. Nothing in the sense that the final product, beautiful light, realistic light, expressive light is the same whether it's created with a digital camera or a film camera or a painter with a brush. But being able to 
record digitally, but even more important than record digitally, being able to produce your final product digitally as in the digital intermediate has really changed so much about how we shoot and light and what the final product is. Um, it's given cinematographers tools that, you know, they never had before. And it's made some of the tools that they did have before as simple as turning a dial, something that used to take hours to create. Mm -hmm. um, so I think one of the reasons when you watch television or, or the streaming services really, and you see the things that are on HBO and Netflix and Hulu, the it's, it, it, it's hard to find a bad-looking show. I mean, this stuff looks gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know? you're right. Especially when it's on your iPad. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think um, it's not to say that cinematographers these days are not as skilled as they once were, but the ability to create a really beautiful image is so much easier today um, from a technical point of view than it was nearly 25 years ago. Yeah, it's far more accessible. The knowledge about how to do it, the tools to do it. Yeah, I mean, you punch your camera, you plug in a monitor, you don't, you barely need any light, and you have an image. Now, it may not be a good image, it may not be strong, it may not, mm -hmm. doesn't really mean anything in terms of you as a cinematographer, but the ability to get that far and, to, and to even to produce something that a skilled colorist could make look beautiful is so much easier today than, you know, when I began and, and you had to really understand exposure and you had to, under, you know, you, you were very often the only one looking through the, the lens and knowing whether something was even in focus or not. None of that, um, you know, all of that is much, much um, simpler today than it once was. We're, the cinematographer is no longer the, the god of the movie set that uh, she or he once was. Um, now, having said that, the, the, the um, you know, as a cinematographer, you need, today, you know, you need to know about all kinds of really annoying things like workflow and <laughs> and uh, that kind of junk um, and codecs and, you know, uh, resolutions and, uh, you know. Yeah, there's all um, this extra stuff now. But is but is it isn't it that ju just kind of like a replacement for the knowledge of like contrast curves and color timing and different bath chemicals and different film stocks and how to you know adjust printer lights and things like that? Um, I don't think so. You know, I think because I think um, first of all, it's much more um, the it's much more forgiving. You know, um, mm. and yeah, on film. No, I think it's much more forgiving mm -hmm. than digital. I think film is, is but but and it's not even you know, everybody talks about digital cameras versus film cameras. It's not even I don't even think it's a, a difference between the um 
uh, shooting film and shooting digital, as much as it's the introduction of the digital intermediate, because you can, you know, when I started out, and if you were, you know, you 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 were shooting and you were a stop, two stops underexposed or something, um, you were panicking. You know, you were like, oh crap, you know, uh, we made a boo boo. I got to push the film. I, you know, today you can be two, three stops underexposed, whether it's film or digital, and somebody can go into the, you know, on the resolve and boom, you know, you're back in business. So I think it's different. You know, I think it's, I think it's much easier today to create a good image than it was um, back in the days of film finish to create a great image. A lasting image is as hard as it ever was. Hi, let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode, Evidence Cameras. If you're in the Los Angeles area, Evidence Cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met. They're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera-related, including helping you create your vision. They strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list, which I might add they can do no matter what you need. Tons of gear and extensive relationships, they can help you get any piece of equipment you want. Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown LA, I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with you on that one. And especially as as the means of making good images becomes more easy, the difficulty of making a great image in the context of so many good images then I, I think is probably even extra harder than it ever has been. But it's, you know, again, it's an interesting uh, balance because you, you know, how do you, how do you ever get to the point of being able to make a great image? Well, you first have to learn how to make good images. And if it's harder to even learn how to make good images, then it's harder to learn how to make great images. You know, it's like a balancing act. So (laughs) maybe it's about as hard as it ever has been. Well, I think what it, I mean, when I began, in the world of television, let's take as an example, mm-hmm. you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and PBS. So you basically had four stations. Um, each one of those would put out um, one documentary a week, um, like C- they had CBS reports. And, and I didn't know a week, what am I saying? They would put out one documentary every like month or, or two. and that's my early days in making documentary. And so whether it was an illusion or not, you could really feel like, you know what, I, I, I can, I can have an impact. I'm going to make a movie. And if I do my job, right. And I really have something important to say, it's going to be heard. I think today it's much more difficult because there's so much more noise, right? You know, the amount of content, is um, it's just overwhelming. And so the ability for any individual piece of content to have an impact, I think, becomes lessened. So I think that's another way of you know agreeing with what you were saying. Um, but um, it's something that as filmmakers, you know, you really have to consider and think about. And, you know, it, 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 it's a very different world right now in terms of 
content consumption. Yeah, it sure is. Well, hopefully the kind of the result of this new world we find ourselves in is that the, you know, you always hope that the cream of the crop rises to the top Um, because as you have so much noise, people then over time figure out how to rise above it and the good things are what people then consume and then that's what they're inspired by, what they are influenced by and, you know, then um, I would think there'd be less noise overall and, you know, to, to counter or to kind of go with what you were saying, you at the same time as there's all this overwhelming content, there's also the ability for people who would have never, ever been able to be heard, you know, kids just starting out making a short film. And if it's good, you know, they get a viral hit on their hands and five million people see it in a matter of months. And, you know, no matter how good of a film they made, you know, 25 years ago, they would have only probably been able to reach however many people go to the film festivals. Well, and goes beyond that, I think this is to what we were discussing earlier, which is the democratization of, uh, of, of you know, uh, visual storytelling is definitely here. When you have an, a smartphone and a laptop, you have a film studio. Right. And so it doesn't take a lot of resources to create content that it once did. I don't know that that accessibility necessarily means you can make a bigger splash because you, again, still have to fight the rest of the noise, but it goes back to that idea of a little bit of luck, you know, and a little bit of talent. And having something to say. Yeah. And yes, you hope it goes viral or it gets seen in some way. But I think it's pretty amazing how um, what technology has given people. And like when I have 14 year old twins, and when I look at them with technology and their comfort level, it's phenomenal. Yeah. You know? It's amazing, isn't it? If you if you have any insights from them on uh, TikTok, please share that with me. <laughs> I'm sure they're, they're oh figuring God. all that stuff out and they're way ahead of you. But if they share that with you, you're going to be oh, on the totally. cutting edge of how to how to yeah. really do uh, you know a new generation of filmmaking. Yeah, I know they're 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 a step ahead of Quibi. Yeah, yeah, all these new formats. Um, one of the points you just made was about how having something important to say is, is, you know, one of the keys to really, you know, being heard. And I think The Five Bloods is a really interesting, powerful, timely, important film right now. And there's a, a great monologue by Chadwick Boseman's character at one point in the film that strongly echoes many of the sentiments I've heard recently. That scene is beautifully lit, though. There's like a slash of, I mean, I'm remembering it now, but from the wait which scene are you talking about the image in my head uh so when chadwick boseman's character has the monologue about why he says they should yeah, um yeah. you know keep the gold for themselves right inside yeah the there's plane. like a slash of inside the plane exactly yep there's like a slash of uh sunlight coming in lighting his face but you know everything else kind of is left in you know relative darkness around him so going back to what you were saying about making things feel more natural and real um, I loved that. Yeah, and that's a, that's a good example of, um, you know, the plane was a set, 
Uh-huh. Right. So it, was, it was built and placed in location. And we knew there was going to be this thing of gold that he was going to open up. And it was going to be like, you know, this, this, this hand of God coming down from the heavens and, and um, bringing light to the dark world. And mm-hmm. ah. so, so there was a whole philosophy behind that. It wasn't just let's light the scene so it looks natural and real. Yeah. So the, where, that, where that window was placed and where that crate of gold was placed was very specific to create that effect. Now, having said that, so so it's a very manipulated, specific um, lighting effect that's created. But from a complete position of naturalism, because we've leading up to that moment, we've been in the um, you know running in the in in the, in the that valley, and it's been harsh, bright sunlight, and you go inside the the wreckage of the plane and the sun just happens to be coming through that window and, you know, bringing light to the pot of gold. Um, so it's a very calculated, constructed um, representation, impressionistic representation of what is actually very natural light. And was that... Um... That was like a collaboration between you and Spike, or was that all him and you carried it out? Yeah, well, I mean, that's really you and the production designer. Um, mm-hmm. I would say I, I knew the, the the meaning of the gold to Spike and his story. And so I worked with Wynne Thomas, the production designer, to give me what I needed to to create the effect. Right. And did you? how did you go about it? Did you just kind of like point a light at the gold? And just kind of finesse it? Pretty much. I mean, pretty much. Yeah, it's lit from outside, you know. It's mm-hmm. sort of regular, fairly traditional uh, HMI lights. And there's nothing really remarkable about it other than making a really strong choice that expressed something, you know. Right, right. Well, there's some other shots in the film that uh, seem to me to be very simple, you know, didn't really take too much. But they, they have a power to them, like when they're trekking through the forest and the sunlight comes and kind of backlights them i love those shots mm. there's a, another shot too with like all their hands are together over the um over the grave of uh i forget the character but over chadwick boseman's character their squad leader and then you storm and norman yeah there you go that's right storm, thank you i knew it was uh kind of like a play in words and the, the the camera's on a crane right and you're you're start really close to the hands then you pull all the way up yeah, it's just yeah. It, it's a powerful shot. I love that, and I imagine no lighting, right? It's just camera work, right? It's a little bit of grip lighting, you know, a little bit of reflection going on. Um, you know, you got to keep in mind that with five bloods, you're dealing with naturalistic light, but you're also dealing with a then dynamic range of, of uh, you know, in that case, digital cameras, and you have really dark flesh tones, you know. Uh, a range, but you know, when you get to somebody like Delroy Lindo, who's you know has a very absorbent um, d- dark flesh tone, you need to find ways to create reflection or uh, just you know bring out some detail in the expressions and the, 
in the, in the skin tone. Was that a, a bit of a, maybe not a challenge, but was that something that you discovered new um, insights about how to do going forward, how to, how to light darker skin tones and have it really, you know, come out well, or. Well, I've, I've dealt with that since, you know, even before platoon, one of the first narrative things I ever shot was a, excuse me, a short film for PBS called my man, Bovan, which was about, um, uh, Bill Cobb played a, a, a blind character. It was an all black cast. And I really, um, I knew very little about lighting, you know, other than what I had taught myself on documentaries. And I remember it being fascinated with what it took to light different skin tones in particular, um, African-American skin tones and how you had some that were more absorbent, some that were more reflective. Uh, some people had more of a matte um, tone. Some people were sort of shinier. Um, some were more sort of blue magenta and some with a warmer, you know, it's just a really, you know, when you go about doing documentaries, you don't think about that kind of stuff very much, but here I was with a bunch of, you know, folks making a low budget PBS movie and one of my first narrative jobs and it's a all black cast. So it was, um, it was a great learning experience. Yeah. So you've worked with uh, Spike Lee on a number of commercials, right? But this is your first feature film collaboration, correct? That's correct. So how did he, I mean, did, did he approach you? Were you like the go-to guy he wanted for this film? He did. It, it was over Christmas and I got the, the call of a lifetime. I, I, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting it at all. Mm -hmm. He called and he said, um, you know, I want you to do this movie. Spike is very decisive. Ah. Doesn't m mess around. And I was like, you want to do it? Here's the script. He sent me the script and I was like, you know, Spike, because um, I was right in the middle of a movie that just recently came out called Extraction. and um, Another Netflix film. Another Netflix film, and I and I um I didn't think I had time to to prep Spike's movie properly, but you know he he felt I was uh, as he said you and I are veterans. <laughs> hmm. I hope that was a compliment. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and a play on a play on the Vietnam uh, you know era too. I like that. I guess so. Yeah, but um, you know in the end um, we went back and forth a little bit, whether it was going to be realistic. But I um, I finished extraction. My last shoot day in extraction was in Bangladesh. And I started with Spike the next day. The next day? Oh, wow. So you didn't have any downtime. Yeah. No. And did you, by I went home for a couple of days to shoot tests. <laughs> okay. Uh, and where'd you go? You went from Bangladesh to where? Where'd you then start? I went back to L.A. for a few days shot some tests and then went to Thailand. Wow. Wow. So where else was, uh, was it actually shot in, in, uh, Vietnam as well as Thailand? I mean, obviously the, 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 the stuff in, uh, Saigon was obviously, uh, Vietnam, but how about some of the location work that was, you know, like in the, in the, uh, forest and stuff and on the rivers, was that in, in both or all in Thailand? Th Thailand and Vietnam. Yeah. Okay. A little bit of the river was in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Most of it was in Thailand. It was predominantly shot in Thailand in part because it was touch and go whether we were going to get into Vietnam to shoot. Um, there was, I think, even a certain 
sense in production that maybe let's just do it all here in Thailand, you know, it's too much trouble. But Spike was very adamant about shooting in Vietnam, and I, I really am grateful that, that he was. Um, so we did get to, um, you know, we shot some of the river stuff, uh, really more of the, the river stuff near the city. Um, and we did uh, the Apocalypse Now is a real um, nightclub um, that we shot in. And um, the, obviously the, the um, walk down what they call Times Square, um, uh, at night is, is, is Vietnam. So the, we shot a bunch of stuff in Vietnam. Um, uh, it would have been great to shoot more, but I'm just grateful that he, he, he kept that alive and insisted on doing it. And he was the same way with the cast. Like all the Vietnamese actors are Vietnamese. I mean, all the Vietnamese characters are Vietnamese actors. And he even tried as much as possible to make sure that all the background actors were also Vietnamese. Oh, even during the uh, Thailand parts, huh? Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I, I would think, actually, I mean, I know Vietnam is positioning itself to have a much bigger film industry, and they're really kind of working to develop that. They are. So I would hope going forward it would only be easier to shoot there. Uh, they are, and I think it is getting easier. And There's actually a fair amount of production going on there, and, you know, it's... Uh, Thailand is a very vibrant place to shoot and, um, you know, has been increasingly so over the years. And I think Vietnam is looking at what they have going and realizing they can do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Good. Well, did you have any kind of like, I'm assuming for me, I would think I would have kind of a moment where I would look around me and have some kind of little existential experience because I, I you were born right before the Vietnam War started and I imagine growing up during that time created a lot of beliefs about you know that part of the world and then I think it was like a decade after that um, after it ended you like you mentioned before you worked as second unit DP on on Oliver Stone's Vietnam film Platoon but that was all shot in the Philippines right that's correct Okay. You're very knowledgeable. I, you know, I try to do a little research. Um, so, is this your first time to Vietnam for, for this film? Uh, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah. So, what was it like actually being there all these years later, and especially to, to work on a film reflecting on that era? It's, I, I got to tell you, it was, um, it was fascinating, of course, as you'd expect. But having grown up during that period, and, and I, I don't think I can emphasize enough how seminal the war in vietnam and the and the struggle against it was to uh someone growing up in the time period that i did that to be there for the first time mm -hmm. knowing all that history and what it represented back when i was a kid was really kind of sometimes eerie sometimes fascinating um always intriguing you know um, like, I can't believe I'm walking down the street of this nation that we, you know, invaded and that we demonstrated against. And when here I am now kind of like bopping down the street, you know? Yeah. Did you have chills at one point? Like every day. <laughs> really? Wow. Okay. Huh. I can imagine. The, it, it was such an important period of my youth that to be there. You, you you would you never stop thinking about it. I never stopped thinking about it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm sure it, it must have been a very existential experience. So I'm glad to hear that that it was like that for you. Um, the experience of growing up during that era, obviously your everything that you knew about Vietnam came to you through imagery. So did that inform any of the choices you made in, in how to capture this film? I mean, there are clearly moments where, you know, there's like a bunch of 16 millimeter shots intercut with uh, the regular, you know, cinema camera footage. But, um, you know, and we could get into whether that was uh, Spike's choice, which I imagine it was, or that came from you. But any uh, any kind of like choices that were informed by what you saw growing up? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, the entire Chadwick Boseman part of the movie, which is all done on 16 millimeter, you know, four by three aspect ratio was really a um, reproduction, so to speak, of the way that uh, Americans experienced the war in Vietnam. It was the first war that was really televised. And right. Yeah. It basically, because it was televised, it created like the entire anti-war movement. I mean, I'd like to think that the anti-war movement was was created because of a upswell of protest against the war. But certainly, it was it, the, the fact that that these images were coming onto the television inspired a lot of the protest. And there was the famous um, Walter Cronkite moment when um, he says, "You have." what is it, shat on the American flag or something like that. And, you know, they showed the pictures of the soldiers burning the hooches. So um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted it to somehow reflect the way that I remember seeing the images from Vietnam. Um, and it also really was a throwback to the way I started my career in documentary, mm-hmm. you know, um, so we chose to shoot 16 millimeter, shoot reversal, not color negative, but reversal, which was very similar to the, um, you know, the ECO film stock and the 7255 uh, and, the, and the different 7241, 7242, the different 16 millimeter film stocks that were around at that time, um, the precursors to what later became known as VNF or video news film. Hmm. But, um, you know, that was really done as an emulation of, of what our memory is of that, that period. And Spike, Spike, um, uh, was sold on it right away. Uh, to the point where when production as as you would expect, you know, said, well, can't we do that in post? Cause they didn't want to have to deal with, shipping footage all the way from Thailand and Vietnam back to the U S and all the problems that creates. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I, I have to really thank Spike that he backed me up and he said, no, no, it's gotta be on film. And so we did shot in 16, 16 millimeter reversal. Beautiful. Well, for people who, you know, only came up knowing digital, and if they even have ever heard of reversal film, have only heard of it. What can you describe? Uh, what it actually is, how it compares to what regular negative film stock would would make make you know the same shot look like? Well, reversal is really um, 
slide film, basically. It's a positive film. And it, um, it has a very particular um, kind of grain and color structure that is um, very high contrast. It's kind of a certain saturation of color. Um, the Actichrome film stock that we used um, tended to have a little more filmic or warm yellowy highlights. Mm, yeah, I noticed that a little bit. Um, and we we celebrated that in our color correction. We just, you know, thought that if you want it to look like 16 millimeter, shoot it in 16 millimeter. Oh, because that's what the traditional 16 millimeter um, cameras actually shot with. They shot with uh, reversal film. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They shot, they shot a lot with reversal film because they did the um, kinescope, you know, where it would be televised. They would develop the, um, the reversal film. And uh, it was an E6 bath, if I remember. And then it would go right onto this thing called a kinescope, which is kind of like a film projector that would have like a, you know, a, a, a video camera pointed to it, a video camera pointing into it. And that's how that film was broadcast. Oh, I get it. Okay. So they chose to do reversal because it basically saved extra time and steps in order yeah. to get the the film, you know, on screen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Use it 11. Huh. Right. Hey, it makes sense. I mean, they, they made choices, uh, dictated by the constraints of what they were working with but of course that then created the very uh character the very the very characteristic now of the imagery we associate with that era yeah it's interesting to know kind of the history of why the past looks the way it does (laughs) and if you think about it this is also happening at the same time as lightweight 16 millimeter crystal sync sound uh film cameras were being invented like the you know uh-huh. the eclair npr and the airy bl eventually the airy sr and the eclair acl and the apton the oricon so you know these uh, for the first time you could pick up a film camera throw it on your shoulder and run around in the in the jungle and that was not really no Mm-hmm. Right. Before that, they couldn't even do it. So, um, okay, so you used those cameras, and somehow you got a hold of that kind of film, even though I imagine there's a very short supply of it in the world at the moment. There's always been a love of reversal film, but it's a very small, weird group of people like myself that appreciates it so much. And um, when I had the thought for doing this, I... I called Kodak because I'd been talking to them about reversal for the last few years, you know, always looking for them to produce some. And they said um, that we're going to come out with a new 16 millimeter reversal. And, but it was all very speculative and, and, you know, rumor. And so I just pushed them. I said, look, you know, I, I want this much film. I will shoot it right now. I guarantee you, and I kept pushing them, and they and they came through. You kind of had it custom made for you, then you didn't just like have it. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it's custom made for us, but 
they make it in very small batches because I don't think they were confident yet in what the, um, the public demand for it would be. Right. So it was um, very hard to get the film from them. It kind of reminded me of the days of Three Kings. Yeah, you used reversal on that film too, right? I used reversal on Three Kings, but in a different way. Because on Three Kings, I took the um, reversal film, and that was actually a still film. And we developed it in an ECN, a negative bath. So it's essentially what we call a cross process. Mm -hmm. And that was 35 millimeter film, right? Not 16 in that case. That's correct. That was all okay. 30 film. Yeah. And so you, you processed it, and then... Yeah, so in Three Kings, we would shoot the reversal film and develop it as a negative. It was an ectochrome. It was called Ectochrome Professional Plus. It was developed as a negative, which already screws the contrast ratio and the colors. And then that um, that was our camera negative. Um, it takes a lot of light to bring up shadow detail. You cannot make a mistake in your exposure and it um it, it the film really really needs a, 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 a punchy light to see any kind of shadow detail and when it goes to overcast it completely changes the nature of the film like radically hence why it worked so well in the very uh, harsh sunlight of the desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, those images, you know, I can see them right now. I mean, it was striking in the film. Mm. So um, I want to go back to uh, The Five Bloods, though. I mean, we could talk about Three Kings for a while, too. I'd have so many questions about that, so many of the films you've done. Um, but beyond the 16-millimeter stuff that you did in The Five Bloods, um, what was your main camera package and, and lenses that you used? Five Bloods was... It was the Alexa LF, which is a medium format, large sensor camera. And mm -hmm. it was in part to give it this more of a um, kind of a modern, glossy, urban, contemporary. You know, we're in Ho Chi Minh City is now a big city. You know, it's hustle and bustle. Right. It really contrasted with the footage we saw at the very beginning of the film, you know, kind of showing the whole history of the time. Yeah. And then you go from that, when you go into the jungle, we went to the Alexa Mini. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, slightly lower res. And um, we opened up the aspect ratio to 185. Now, that sounds like I'm, I've got it backwards when I say opened up. But I do mean opened up in this sense. The... Netflix um, streaming format is, you know, the full frame of it is 16 by 9. Right. So when you shoot 240, you have a letterbox on the top and you have a letterbox on the bottom. And when you go to 185, you're not actually making the image smaller. You're opening up the top and the bottom. You're filling the frame. Oh. And so... The effect was intended to um, take this sort of letterbox 
contemporary widescreen feel and all of a sudden open the jungle up. And then when you go to the letterbox, excuse me, to the uh, newsreel footage, the, the, the flashback footage, it goes to four by three, which is precisely what it would have been had we been shooting news for television back in that day. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't notice that, actually. I didn't really pay attention to the aspect ratio, but... Good. <laughs> but it worked. Yeah. It did feel like it, it felt opened up, for sure. I mean, I I'm, I'm obviously noticed when it was the newsreel footage and when it was 4 by 3 and when the 16 millimeter stuff you shot was on screen, but... Yeah. Compared to the uh, the rest of it, I didn't I didn't notice that. Interesting. And the, and and the you know the not only is it our collective memory, the the four by three and the reversal and all that good stuff, but mm -hmm. when you look at the stock footage, um, that's what that is. You know, all that stock footage is four by three because it's this, was shot in this similar methodology. Right. So it also made it a very nice sort of blend or counterpoint to the other. Uh, the other footage. Right, right, right. Um, is there any other notable gear or technologies used on the film uh, beyond the 16 millimeter and the uh, using the large format Alexa? Well, we used the um, the Airy Trinity. Oh, you did uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I, I really um, was very um, impressed with the, the the way it enhanced the the steady cam i mean i'm very familiar like everybody with the steady cam um and it's an amazing tool but you know it has its certain limitations and one of the big ones is its range of uh like vertical movement you know you can you can only go so low and so high you can really only move you know, like three feet or so so the trinity all of a sudden opened up a whole different world of of camera movement because you could put the lens right near the ground and come up over a, a rock or a tree branch or whatever in a way that you 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 know you couldn't do with a normal steady cam so we used it quite a bit and um, um, I think spike really loved um, how it sort of enhanced his menu of shots that you couldn't have done without it. Mm. Yeah, well, I can imagine. Well, he's, you know, I'd love to talk about him a little bit. He's such a legendary filmmaker. Uh, he's a little bit enigmatic, though, although, you know, he's also this, like, tenured film professor and a huge wealth of knowledge on the art and the craft and the history of filmmaking. Uh, what was it like to work with him? I mean, you worked with him a lot, but, you know, on a feature film, uh, what's it like to work with him, and what's his process as a, as a director like? Well, Spike works very quickly. He's very decisive. He likes to start early in the morning, no matter what. So you'll have a six o'clock call, even if it's pitch black. Um, and he moves on very quickly. He gets what he wants, and then it's like next, next. Hmm. So there's there's not a lot of hemming and hawing. And not a lot of like, let me figure this out. Um, he's he's very decisive that way, and so you know you have to bring your A game, and you have to be uh, on your toes with him. Um, and at the same time as he's very decisive, he's very uh, collaborative too. He'll listen to any idea you put out there, 
And he'll very quickly say, yeah, let's do that. Or no, I don't want to do that. So one thing is, you know, you don't want to brainstorm with him quite so much as if you present an idea, you want to present an idea that you believe in 100%. And be prepared for it to be rejected. Because if you present it and he says yes, you're there. You're doing it. Even if you don't want to anymore, you're going to, you're going to be doing it. But if you don't present it well and he doesn't like it, that's it. You don't get a second chance. You know, you're not going to be like, hey, you know the thing I was talking about yesterday? Well, really, you know, what if we, it's, you know, he's, he's, he, he knows what he wants. And um, he's fair, but he's not patient. You know, he's, he's, um, he's not, well, he understands the process. He understands what it takes to get something done, but he doesn't want to, he's, he's, he's not one to watch somebody fumble around, you know? Um He's 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 got an agenda and he's on the move. He's got places to go and people to see and uh, and and you got to get your uh, you got to get your thing done. So um, you just have to be very specific and decisive in what you present to him if you're trying to pitch an idea. Um, and he is enigmatic and he is um, he's you know chooses his word carefully and um his decisions with precision Hmm. i like that i like that a lot it certainly shows up in his work i'd say which is one of the reasons i was really curious about what what he's like to work with and what his process is like you know there's so many problems that come up uh on a set and given what you're saying about how he likes to move on quickly and be decisive how what have you seen about how he he solves those problems when he's not getting what he wants and he knows exactly what he wants? Uh, what what does he do in order to get what he wants as quick as possible? Um, hmm. I think he gets what he wants. <laughs> Is he just like a really good communicator with the actors and and the crew? Well, I think he, you know, there was a couple times on uh, on uh, on Five Bloods, like with Clark Peters, you know. Each one of the actors had a very different uh, um, process. And there were times when, um, you know, he would have a heated debate with an actor, maybe. Um, but he always had his, he had his point of view. And I think there was so much respect for him as a, from the actors as a, you know, an American master that when they would argue something out, if they came to an impasse, and there wasn't much of this really. But when there was, it was like, well, you know what? He's Spike and he knows what he wants. I don't know if he's going to do what he wants. Right. Hey, lucky him. <laughs> What's that? That's a great position. I said lucky him. That's a great position to be in as a director. Yeah. Well, I think there's a tremendous respect for him, especially, you know, all the black actors. I mean, you know, this is Delroy Lindo had worked with him before and, and as had Isaiah Whitlock. And I think everyone else was just, you know, it's. Like an Italian working for Scorsese, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I've always kind of, you know, looked to him. My introductions to him were really as a as like a film teacher first, and then I saw his his work afterwards. So I'd be curious, uh, has he taught you anything about filmmaking that you find really valuable? I mean, I'm sure you guys just have conversations on set, right? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, 
the interesting thing, you know, he he on on Five Bloods he kept referring to David Lean. You know, he wanted this film to he wanted the film to be epic. Yeah, I I had a little bit of Bridge on the River Kwai vibes at a few points actually. Well, and that was no coincidence really. Hmm. He, you know, Spike. There, some of the coverage in you know, in the, at the beginning, I was a little like, oh, it's a little stagey, or it's a little, um, you know, it's it's not necessary, you know, look look for a little different composition or whatever. And then, you know, he explained to me. He said, you know, Tom, um, it's real. It's it's about the Bloods. It's about this group, this band of brothers. And that led him to want it to as much as he could to tell the story in like group shots. Right. I was going to say, yeah, I, I kept noticing they're all together. Like there are close ups, but, but it's, it's, they're all together and it's almost all done in like, you know, four shots and two shots. And it, there's very little, uh, you know, sort of normal coverage of, you know, close up of him reverse over the shoulder. Very little of that. And, um, I, 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 it took me a little, little, little bit of time, but I started to see what he was, what he was going for. You know, what, what this, this idea of this group, this, this, right, this band of brothers, and um, he, I think he communicated that and expressed it really well um, by shooting it that way, even though at first it felt to me like, you know, not very dynamic. Right, I could see, yeah, maybe a little more like theatrical where, you know, you have like the proscenium and you just have the actors there. Very much, yeah. yeah. How many takes? I mean, it sounds like he likes to move on really fast, but when you have... Very few. Yeah, when you have Very that many few. people, though, all on the shot, you have like four times the uh, performances that have to be, you know, good at the same time. Yeah. It seems like it really takes a lot of uh, either a lot of takes, which obviously it didn't, or rehearsals, or just people. No, very few takes. Uh-huh. You don't do a lot of takes with him, and um, you know uh, it's a cliche, but they're really good actors. He had a really good cast. You know these are these are um, the creme de la creme of what I guess you would call character actors at this stage in their career. Um, but these guys are, you know, Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, you know, and then the up and coming Jonathan Majors. There, there's was no slouch amongst them. These guys are really good. So, um, and they all played off each other too. That also helps. Yeah, yeah. They they all seem to really kind of vibe with each other. And he was very specific about who he cast. I think. You know. uh-huh. Yeah, casting is huge. Are you ever involved in any of the like non, you know, given your relationship with uh, Spike going back a while, are you involved in any of the decisions like casting just as one example, but what I'm really getting at are the kinds of decisions that normally a cinematographer has no involvement in. Did you have a say in that kind of stuff on this film? Very little. No, in this one I had no say. Okay. Very rare that, at least in my experience as a cinematographer, that you... um, that you uh, get involved in casting. Um, I've had a few times when I've, I've I must admit, um, I got involved in one of them that I love telling the story because when we did the first X-Men, the part of Wolverine was meant to be Dougray Scott. 
Oh wow, I didn't know. We were in we were yeah, we were in Toronto. We kept getting delayed to start our production because we were waiting for Du Gray Scott to finish on Mission Impossible. And um, finally one day Brian Singer got frustrated and he said and uh, he said Tom, let, let's go to the to the room and look at these. I want to look at these casting tapes. Come with me. And uh, so I sat down and he started looking through these casting tapes. And this one casting tape came up and uh, I looked over at Brian and said, God, this guy's like, he's like a young Mel Gibson or something. He's, he's really, you know, he's, he's great. He's good looking, you know, who's he? And Brian kind of looks at me, oh, it's uh, Hugh Jackman is his name. You know? And uh, the next thing I knew, Hugh Jackman was coming over uh, uh, on an airplane so we could screen test him with Anna Paquin on two armchairs after work in the hallway of the Roy Thompson Hall where we shot the, you know, the... The, um, the university. Yeah, one of the first days of... Not the university, it was, it was meant to be like the Congress, the Futuristic Congress. Um, and... Um, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, wow. And the other, the other one, the other one that I love to 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 think about was, um, in Brothers Grimm with Terry Gilliam, we had the part of the evil queen, uh, played by Cameron Diaz, that Terry had worked with before. Except things started going south, and it was like, uh, it's not gonna work out. And oh my God, she's getting ugh. And then. Uh, Harvey Weinstein gave Terry this list of actresses, you know, that of course he did go to as an alternative. <laughs> of course he did. Oh gosh. Yeah. And, uh, fortunately none of them were, uh, well, I don't know what, they were. but on the list, I remember Terry looking at the list, like, who are they? What is it? And I saw Monica Bellucci and I had seen Monica Bellucci in that movie, Milena and thought she was just phenomenal. So I saw her, and that's when, I, I, I don't know, Terry might have a different story, but I remember saying to him, Terry, you have to get Monica Bellucci. And he was like, who is she? And I'm like, oh, no, you don't understand. And I, I just like, you got to do it. You gotta, I, I just, I was so in love with her. I thought she was just so amazing. And uh, she got the part. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. You should have just said she's a future Bond girl. Just trust me. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Does uh, Hugh Jackman know that story? Does he like send you a bottle of uh, you know wine every year as a as a thank you? <laughs> I, I didn't. I I, I want to be very careful about something. I didn't get Hugh Jackman the job. Trust right, me. Right. Um, right. And he was already very much, you know, it, it it wasn't like Brian hadn't thought about him, but he was looking at a few different ones and. And I don't know, I guess you'd have to ask Brian how much influence, you know, having his cinematographer say, hey, that guy looks, you know, was. I, I'd, I'd be happy to take all the credit, but I'm sure it's not true. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Well, you know, really, I was asking more, not so much from a cinematographer's angle, because obviously, you know, that is not your department. And, and I don't think a cinematographer really should have a say in, in casting. But really, my question was, like, I, I didn't think about the casting, actually. My question was about other areas. Did you have any say in other than your department on this film? Like, do you have any sense of, uh, of not ownership, but, you know, of a role that you played in uh, the making of the film beyond your normal role? 
I don't know about being on my normal role, no, but I think that I uh, got very involved with locations because I thought that was really important in this film, and I was amongst the, the lobbyists for Vietnam very strongly, you know, and I expressed it to Netflix as well. Um, oh, good. So you really went up like the chain of command, huh? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't go up the chain of command. The chain of command was there, and we just and I gave him my opinion. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Okay. Let's put it I that way. It, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, it was an important point to make. I'm glad it happened. Yeah, because uh, you know it was definitely very mm. touch and go mm. for a while. Um, one of the last questions I I want to ask you is about your your favorite shot, if if th that even exists. I mean, you, you've got quite a body of work and, uh, you know, looking at your work, I don't really, uh, like I mentioned before, it, it doesn't really have a particular style. It's more characterized by bold techniques, unusual perspectives, and, uh, you know, a focus on storytelling visually. But is there a particular shot across your body of work thus far that you feel really exemplifies what you aim to create? Um, you know, your favorite shot or your a lot of people say, like, what's the favorite movie you've done? Um, that's like saying, which one of your kids do you like best, you know? Um, but um, I can tell you which one. No. Um, <laughs> They're twins, so you hopefully never get asked that. <laughs> yeah, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Um, it, it, um, it, it's funny how sometimes I don't think that much of my work and then I see things and uh, you know, like you in a hotel room and you turn on the TV and a movie you did comes on and you go, oh, well, that actually looks pretty good. I don't know, you know what that's like, but I would I would like to someday. <laughs> well, um, but I mean, certainly the shot that we spoke about with um, Bohemian Rhapsody um, coming across right. the crowd and the stadium and into the close-up of Freddie Mercury. I mean, I think that's a uh, mm -hmm. was a really effective shot. You know. Um, and it was a great bit of storytelling. Yeah, it had so much going on for it. Beyond, I mean, it would have been a great shot even beyond the dolly zoom, but then that came in and it really just like brought home the feeling and the, you know, the experience of what the character and, and the moment is about. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> um, there's another shot. I mean, there's like even a simple shot, like the 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 wide angle of the sunglasses on the table and you see like Freddie <laughs> reflected in them. Like that is just a striking shot I have never seen in any other movie. Maybe I need to watch more movies, which I'm always up for doing. You want to know the history of that shot? Yeah, please tell me because I haven't seen that before and I loved it. So we had the scene in the office and uh, the I had sort of roughed in some lighting and the actors were there. And the sunglasses were just sitting on the table and we were waiting for Brian and uh, I started fiddling with them and taking some stills and looking at it and tweaking, getting Rami in the shot and stuff. And then I, I showed the still to Rami and I went, that's cool, isn't it? And he said, yeah, well, that's really cool. And I said, why don't we shoot it? And he went like, okay. So I got the movie camera <laughs> over there, the Alexa 65. <laughs> and uh, I just shot it. It was literally 
It was nothing planned. It was nothing storyboarded or shot listed. It had been nothing discussed. I, you know, I was trying to make use of some waiting time and, and there you go. I love that. Well, that's a great, uh, there's so many things about that, that someone could learn from, you know, young, young, uh, aspiring filmmakers on set. I think, you know, if they experience downtime would be, uh, (laughs) would most likely just start fiddling on their phone and not looking for opportunities to make the film better. And, you know, if you look around you, you're sensitive to the moment. You discover something that ends up not only being, you know, a memorable shot, but it was used in the trailer. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it has meaning to it in terms of visual storytelling. And I love the story behind it. Yeah, I I love stealing shots. You just stole that shot. Yeah, that comes out of the... Yeah, it comes out of my documentary tradition, you know, stealing shots. Oh, um, I get it. But I think uh, it's very—it can be very frustrating on a motion picture set because you are constantly trying to steal shots with set dressers walking through it or prop people, or <laughs> and then you—and then you're told that oh, the continuity is wrong or that right. But uh, yes, those are some of my favorite shots. Mm. It reminds me of a um, uh, something that Paul Cameron told me in uh, episode two of the podcast, where he said what he did on Man on Fire was he took um, I forget the exact name of the camera, but you know he took a little airy camera and uh, put like a huge film magazine on it and just had it like set up um, in order to steal shots when like, you know, no one would really notice. And there's some amazing close-ups of Denzel Washington that are in the film that were just taken on that little camera. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any advice to up and coming filmmakers and cinematographers in particular, based on, you know, your 40 some years as a, as a filmmaker and, and what you see about the world we're in? Well, I, I would tell them, to be careful um, about accepting interviews before you know how long they go. No, uh, <laughs> um, sorry about that. No, no, I'm teasing. I mean, you know, you get asked this question all the time, mm. and as I've been teaching online, you get asked this question. But I mean, I think live life outside of cinema so you have something to say. Mm-hmm. Find like-minded people to work with because film is a collaborative medium, and you'll be a better filmmaker with better partners and keep making things. Every time you pick up a camera, every time you shoot something, every time you edit something, you'll learn. And if you really, really look at what you're doing, you'll get better. So that's what I would say. Wonderful. Well, I, I'll i take that to heart personally, and I hope everyone else listening who isn't uh, already an established filmmaker, will, or even if they are, will uh, take that to heart as well. <laughs> oh, well, great. Well, thank you. It's um, Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's kind of like talking to a therapist. <laughs> really? That's how you feel? <laughs> yeah, like you can unload all your cinematic truths. Oh, I love that. Beautiful. Well, hey, if you if you benefit from this and I benefit from it and everyone listening to it benefits from it, then that's like the best possible scenario as far as I'm concerned. There we go. Well, I hope everybody listening goes out and makes some great movies that when I'm old and gray, I can sit and watch. Sounds good. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And a big thank you to Tom Siegel for his time and wisdom and Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show. If you'd like to support me in keeping this show more regular, please consider donating through the link in this episode's description. Thank you so much, and stay tuned for the next episode, which will be a slightly new direction, and I'm very excited to share it with you. Music